All right, please take your Bibles and turn to Luke 10 this evening. Tonight we get to go back to the basics in our Christian life. In some ways, it's been a day of basics. We speak this morning of that basic of following the Lord with believers' baptism. This evening, we challenge ourselves with one of the fundamentals of the Christian faith, love thy neighbor. It's easy enough until we remember who our neighbor is. And that's what Jesus is going to be teaching us this evening. Who is my neighbor? You know, fundamentals in any context are very important. If you don't have the fundamentals of any particular sport or of any particular skill or of the Christian life for that matter, everything else becomes more difficult. If you get the fundamentals down, then everything else is able to fall into place. Listening to me this evening are a number of people that uh, we would consider to be good Christians. Uh, we do the things that we need to do, and we learn, and we grow. And yet, for all that, uh, externally, we, we all look pretty good. The question is, do we have the fundamentals down? And if we have the fundamentals down, then those elements of the Christian life that are lived more externally more in the eyes of others, are a natural overflow of that which we are. But it's entirely possible, and we all know this to be true, to live out those externals while completely ignoring the fundamentals. And unfortunately, oftentimes in the Christian life, because the fundamentals are hard, because the fundamentals take more work, and because the fundamentals dig down to the very root of our heart's issues with pride and with selfishness and with self-righteousness and such, the fundamentals are often the first to go in the Christian life. And so we focus on the things that seem a bit more attainable, the things that people will see, the things that we don't want people to know what's going on inside, so we make the outside of the cup clean, as Jesus would describe the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And we can miss the fundamentals. And so we're going to talk about one of those basics this evening. The basics of the Christian life. Daily fellowship with the Lord, faithful witnessing of the truth, patient love to those who are around us. One of those this evening. The basic element of the Christian life known as loving your neighbor. We pick up in Luke 10. In verse 25, we ended in verse 24 last week. We pick up in verse 25 this week, and the Bible says this. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, as we begin this evening, it's important to understand the context which these verses introduces. The lawyer stands up, and the Bible says that he stands up specifically to tempt Jesus. That word there meaning to test thoroughly. It's the same word that's used in Matthew chapter 4, verse 7, when Jesus is being tempted by Satan. But what's interesting is it's not speaking of the temptation of Satan to Jesus. It's not that word that's, that's translated the same, the same Greek word, but rather it's the word when Christ says... That if he threw himself off the peak of the temple in order to prove that God would rescue him, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. That word is the word that we see 
paralleled here. The kind of temptation that forces God's hand to make him go outside of himself to sustain his perfect will. This word is also used in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 9 to reference those demanded of God to, uh, uh, th- those who demanded of God some provision in the wilderness, uh, back in the days of Exodus. Saying in Numbers chapter 21 verse 5, our souls loathe this light bread, meaning this insufficient bread. And the Bible says that they tempted God in the wilderness. That's the idea here. It's the same word that's used in this context when this certain lawyer comes up and he says to Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? But he's doing it not to actually genuinely ask this question, but rather to tempt Jesus with this question. What we have here is an intelligent man, no doubt, a lawyer, and he knows the law. That's what it meant to be a lawyer in the day. Now, what's interesting is when we think of a lawyer today, we say civil law. But a lawyer in the time of Christ, what was their law? Well, their law was the religious law, right? It was the law of Moses. And so this lawyer knows the law and he knows the law really well. And this is important for us to understand that this lawyer really knows the law because that is going to be the context within which we understand why he's asking what he's asking and why he responds the way he responds. And then why Jesus responds after that, the way he responds. It all comes back to the the man and what kind of man it is that's asking and what he's trying to do. He's a lawyer. He knows the law really well, and he's tempting Jesus. He's not asking an honest question. He's trying to back Jesus into a corner. He's not trying to get an honest answer. And you know, you've been in those situations before where somebody is asking a question, but you know that they're not actually asking an honest question. Maybe you have been witnessing before, and somebody says, well, answer me this one, and then I'll start to believe you. Can God create a rock he can't lift? Right? And, and what's he doing there? Well, he doesn't care about the answer to that question. He's trying to put you into a paradox so that you'll feel foolish. Or when you talk to somebody and you say you need to accept Jesus Christ to be saved, you're saved by grace through faith. And they look at you and say, well, don't you say that you're not, that you can't work to be saved? And yes, that you cannot work to be saved. Well, faith is a work. Right? And so, and, and, and they'll, they'll do this. And what they're, they're not actually being genuine there. What they're doing is they're looking for an excuse to back you in a corner to, to make you shut your mouth. To give you, uh, to make you feel like, okay, I, I can't defend that one, so I better just, better just leave it as it is. Well, it's not a genuine question. It's not a genuine argument. The man is overthinking the, the, the situation. He's trying to deny the simplicity of eternal life. That Jesus Christ is preaching, looking to prove Jesus to be unreasonable. He is looking for a cause to reject Jesus' claims outright or to claim moral superiority through his understanding of the law. And the question that is specifically asked is, what shall I do to inherit eternal life. Now there are two important elements to this question which actually work in opposition to each other. The first element is, what shall I do? The man is seeking an answer to his question that is rooted in some personal merit. See, and he's a lawyer, so this makes sense, right? Because everything in the law is about do. Do this and I will bless you. Do this and I will curse you. So it makes sense that he says, okay, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He... he, truly feels that by doing something, he will then receive something in return. But this is where things get interesting, because the man does not say, what shall I do to earn eternal life, does he? He says, what shall I do 
the second element of this question, to inherit eternal life. What events must I go through in order to place myself into the path of inheritance? It's important to understand that the concept of an inheritance is a concept of position, not merit. Right? It's a concept of position, not merit. A child does not receive an inheritance from his father on the basis of merit per se, but on the basis of position. Now, in today's world, of course, uh, a father writes a will, he gives some to the kid he liked more, or the kid that was responsible, or whatever it might be. But uh, characteristically, as we think about history, an inheritance is something that is given to you by position. Right? In, in the Jewish law, in the Old Testament law, the first son received the double portion. He didn't receive the double portion by virtue of his merit. He received the double portion by virtue of his position. He was born first. He gets double. That's just the way it is. And so we have here an interesting paradox, if you will, where he's talking about doing something to position position himself to receive something, but not to earn it, rather to receive it by inheritance. A person does not earn an inheritance. They receive it by nature of their relationship to the giver. And it's likely that the man framed this question this way because of the content of Jesus's previous teaching. Recall, as we were teaching through Luke 9, uh, we referenced the words of Jesus in Matthew 19, 29, where he said this, And everyone that hath forsaken houses, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or child, or lands for my sake, shall receive an hundredfold, and shall inherit everlasting life. This same concept of inheritance comes up here where Jesus is teaching that a disciple who has forsaken earthly priorities for a heavenly will be greatly blessed with the fruit of his spiritual efforts. And at the end of this blessing, he, by virtue of his position as a disciple, will then inherit eternal life. It's perhaps this very teaching. I would not be surprised if it was these very words of Jesus talking about denial of self and then using this phrase in shall inherit everlasting life that that this lawyer is playing off of. That he says, Jesus, you've talked about inheriting eternal life before, so I'm going to use your phraseology. I'm going to use your words. You're talking about inheriting eternal life, and you say that if I do all of these things, then I'll receive a hundredfold in this time, and then eternal life, an inheritance of eternal life. So what must I do then to inherit? If all of these things will bring about one hundredfold in this time, and then in the world to come eternal life, what must I do to receive that inheritance? And perhaps that's what what the lawyer was thinking of. So Jesus says unto him this in, in verse 26. He said unto him, what is written in the law? How readest thou? I love this response. Because Jesus uses the very law that the lawyer wants to trap Jesus to lead a man into an element of truth. And here's one of the things that's very important about when we're talking with someone who doesn't necessarily agree with us. Find the common ground first. If, no matter how far you have to back up in their theology, find the place where you two agree so that you can find where it is that you diverge. Because oftentimes what we're talking about when we're debating someone is the stuff way on the, the farthest limbs of their interpretive problems or their interpretive perspectives. We'll call it that, right? Because it may be us with the interpretive problem. So th- we're, we're debating with them on the things that are on the farthest limbs of their interpretive perspective. But really, it's not there that, I mean, we, we could fight all day about that, but we're coming from 
we're, we're over here on this branch and they're over here on that branch. So you need to find out where those two branches split. And you need to settle that issue. And if you settle where those two branches split, then you can start to understand why they're over here and you're over there. And you can start to see if maybe we can merge these branches or if they're just irreconcilable differences. And so Jesus is asking a question here, trying to dig down. So what does the law say? You're a lawyer. What does the law say? The lawyer is coming to Jesus to some degree or another, having disregarded Jesus's teaching that in fact, no man can get himself to heaven. We might expect Jesus to look at him and say, well, you can't do anything to inherit eternal life. That would be my response. You can't do anything. I've said that to many a person before when they've tried to use self-righteousness. But Jesus doesn't say that. He says, so then what does the law say? What does the law say? The nature of the man's question, Jesus knows his question is not entirely genuine. It's not entirely honest. It's a temptation. He's going to give the man what he wants. Jesus is going to give him the divine moral basis for inheriting eternal life. And what is the moral basis by which we all can inherit eternal life? It is moral perfection. You must be perfect to go to heaven. That's the truth, isn't it? You must be perfect to get to heaven. So Jesus directs the lawyer to the law. Jesus knows the lawyer knows the law. So he asks the man what is written in the law. And then notice that second question. How readest thou? How do you interpret the law? What do you think it means? What what, what do you read as what the law says about how uh, how to inherit eternal life? Again, very important. How are they interpreting How is he interpreting? You know, a lot of times, the problem is not that we don't see the same evidence. As a matter of fact, we all see the same evidence because truth is truth. The problem is how we're interpreting the evidence. Uh, the, The great debate between the young earth creationist and the evolutionist is a prime example of this, right? You look at the Grand Canyon and the evolutionist says, I see layers and each one of those layers is millions of years. And the young earth creationist says, I see layers and each one of those layers has been put there by a cataclysmic global flood that shook up the earth and everything fell into sediment layers based upon the weight of the sediments, right? That's what, that's what a young earth creationist sees. We're looking at the same evidence, but we are interpreting it differently based upon our worldview, based upon our understanding. So Jesus goes to this lawyer and he says, well, you have the law and I have the law and you know the law and I know the law. So tell me, what does the law say? How do you read the law? The lawyer and Jesus both know where he's going with this. And any controversy that arises will not be over whether uh, or not the law says something. The controversy will be over how they interpret what the law says. Not a controversy of what the law says, but of how we read it. Indeed, today in Christianity, much of controversy rests on this very issue. How we read what we read in the Bible. And so Jesus asks the lawyer to explain from his understanding what the merit, what is the merit by which you inherit eternal life? And the lawyer answers in verse 27. He answering said, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind and thy neighbor 
as thyself. So the lawyer's answer here is, by the way, 100% correct. 100% correct. Love God with all thy heart, soul, and might. And the second, love thy neighbor as thyself. Jesus would often use this exact same answer when he was questioned on this. Matthew 22, verses 34 to 40. But when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, here's another lawyer, right? Uh, asked him a question, tempting him, saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second, like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So Jesus gives the same answer that this lawyer gives. Maybe this lawyer had even heard Jesus at another time give this very answer. And so it's a very safe answer to give. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and might, and love thy neighbor as thyself. Every law of God is a subset of these two laws. Did you know that? Every law of God is a subset of these two laws. The Ten Commandments is, a, is, is a, an expanding of these two commandments into ten. We find, and I believe that this is the breakup, the first five commandments, many people will say the first four commandments and the final six commandments. I disagree. I think it's the first five and the last five. The first five commandments being love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and might commandments. The final five commandments being love thy neighbor as thyself commandments. You say, well, pastor, why break it up at four? Why not break it up? Or why break it up at five? Why not break it up at four? After all, honor thy father and thy mother. Isn't that loving thy neighbor as thyself? Well, not really. When you think about it, honoring thy father and thy mother is not an interpersonal relationship issue. It's a God issue, isn't it? It's an issue of they're my authority and I'm going to obey them. Now, these other things, not killing, not committing adultery, these are offenses we can do against someone. To not honor your father and mother is an offense against God directly. It's not an offense against your parents as much as it's an offense against God. Because God is the authority which commands you to do it. So we have the first five, I believe. Um, honor is, is to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and might. The second five is to love thy neighbor as thyself. Then, of course, we can understand that every expectation given in uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy is an expansion of these. It's either do this because of directly because of God or do this in obeying God by loving your neighbor. Directly related to interpersonal relationships one with another. So the whole of the law and the prophets comes down to these two commands. To love thy God with all thy heart, soul, and might. To love thy neighbor as thyself. And then that expands to the Ten Commandments. And that expands to all the law and to the prophets. We continue in verse 28. And he said unto him, this would be the lawyer speaking to Jesus. Excuse me, Jesus is speaking to the lawyer. Thou has, uh, he said unto him, thou hast right, answer right. This do, and thou shalt live. So Jesus responds in the affirmative, right? You're right. Those are the two great commands. Do this, and you'll inherit eternal life. Now this is where Jesus' response stops, because this is where the man's willingness to hear stops. That's why Jesus stopped here. Because the man was not asking an honest question. Now, if, if the man was asking an honest question, we can believe that Jesus' response would have been slightly different. He wouldn't have left this man hanging a little bit just with the, an, the, the simple answer to his question, which is you have to be perfect. He would have gone on to say, but you can't be perfect. I'm the door. 
I'm the way, the truth, and life. Something to that effect. But see, this lawyer wasn't asking an honest question. So Jesus isn't going to play these games. The man had the right answer, but he misread the problem between himself and Jesus. The problem was not that they didn't interpret the law the same way. The problem was that this man thought those two commandments were doable in himself. And Jesus was there to tell all that would hear that these two commandments have already fallen well outside of their ability to accomplish. And this is where the divide was found between this certain lawyer and Jesus on this day. There are many different divides that separate men from the truth of God's word, aren't there? For some, the divide is that whether or not they're sinners. For some, the divide is whether or not works or anything else can earn them that salvation. For some, the divide is the nature of Jesus' identity, the nature of faith, even the nature of what it really means to believe. These are all divisions that can cause people to err from an understanding of by grace through faith, salvation. But Christ is not divided, is He? And all who seek Him, seek Him on His terms, the terms of grace, not merit. And all that will do so will be found of him. But this man, again, we mentioned, was not looking for truth. He was looking to trap Jesus. And so Jesus gives him as much as this man will receive. That yes, just as the lawyer states, so it is, that those who will inherit eternal life will be those who on the day of judgment have kept the whole law. Those who without fail loved God with all their heart, souls, and might every time without exception, and those who, without fail, every time, without exception, love their neighbor as themselves. Well, the lawyer totally misses the fact that he's already fallen short of this. And by this point, I think he's feeling pretty good. He says, okay, I've got this. I've loved the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, and my, and I've loved my neighbor as myself. But remember what Jesus asked him, how do you read the law, right? How do you read? We're about to come to another interpretive impasse. Another point where we're about ready to branch between two men and what it means to interpret the Bible. So the lawyer thinks he's in a pretty good place. He has, by his own flawed definition of himself, loved God with all his heart. Now he needs to know what it means to love his neighbor as himself. What does it mean to love my neighbor as myself? So he asks in verse 29, but he willing to justify himself. He is looking for self-righteousness. He wants to feel good about his own standing. He's looking for Jesus to give him that thing where he can walk away and say, I've done it. I've got it. I've got eternal life. He says, who's my neighbor? Willing to justify himself said unto Jesus. And who is my Neighbor, He thought he saw the light at the end of the tunnel, this lawyer. He directed a God in his own image and by his own reckoning of this false God that he loved with all of his heart and by his own reckoning of this false standard by which he thinks he has loved his neighbor as himself well. He now seeks to seal the deal by finding common ground on who his neighbor is. And here's where things take a dramatic turn. And in order to help the man understand exactly who our neighbor is, Jesus gives a parable. Now, before we begin, let us remember how it is that we're supposed to interpret parables. We just talked before the service about how important it is that we interpret the Bible properly. When we go to different elements of biblical writing, we have to interpret them in different ways. So we would not interpret Hebrew poetry the same way we would interpret historical narrative. We cannot do that. We cannot ter- uh, um, interpret apocalyptic literature, end times visions, the same way that we would interpret 
historical narrative. If we do that, we're going to get in a, a world of trouble. And one of the interesting um, um, devices that Jesus Christ uses in his ministry heavily is the parable. When we approach a parable in the Bible, we must understand that they are intended to teach a single lesson. And that everything in the story, everything in the parable is intended to draw our hearts and our minds to a single lesson. A parable is not an allegory. And this is an important thing to understand. Because what often people try to do with parables is they attempt to allegorize them. And in an allegory, a story is told where everything in the story exists as a fictional representation presentation of something true. So uh, one of the, the most popular allegory of all time is Pilgrim's Progress, right? Where everything in that story represents something. Everything in that story, Pilgrim represents something. Uh, the, the load on his back represents something. The slow despond represents something. Everything represents something. And each thing in and of itself, each entity has its own function as its own representative case in the allegory. Parables are not this way. In a parable, there's one main point that Jesus is pointing towards, and he's driving to that point. And the other things in the story, it may mean something, it may represent something, or it may not. It may be that that person, that, that, that third or that fourth person in the parable is actually supposed to represent something, or he may just be there to round out the story. He doesn't have to represent something. But throughout history, what we've often found is that people who have studied their Bible have tried to turn parables into allegories. And everything has to mean something. And then the entire point of the parable gets muddied underneath all of the stuff that mean, that, that, that's heaped on top of it. So we need to be careful that we're not losing the main point. Now, we can, we can identify these other aspects these other representations, and we can preach messages on them, and we can follow them, and we can learn from them. But if we miss the main point, if we miss where Jesus is driving, then we missed it. And so we need to make sure that we're going where Jesus is going with it. And that means Jesus is answering the question, who is my neighbor? Which means this parable is going to answer that question, who is my neighbor? We don't need to get into all of the other stuff. We can get into other stuff, but we don't need to go there. What we need to do is understand who Jesus says our neighbor is. That's why he's giving the parable. So let's walk through the parable. And this is one of the most misinterpreted parables in all of the Bible. This and the prodigal son of Luke 15 are oft misinterpreted. Beginning in verse 30. First we'll walk through what's often taught and then we'll walk through what, it, what, what Jesus is actually saying. But in verse 30 we read this through 35. Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment, and wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him, and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. And went to him, and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence, and gave them to the host, and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, 
when I come again, I will repay thee. So here's the parable. A Jewish man walks from Jerusalem to Jericho. As he does so, he falls among thieves. They take his clothes, they wound him, they leave him half dead. Now he's lying there on the road. Along comes a few travelers. The first traveler is a priest. Not only is this priest a fellow Jew, but he's a priest, right? He's a man who studies and teaches the law. He's a man who is supposed to exemplify God and the service and the worship of God. That priest sees the man, and instead of helping him, he walks right past him. Then comes a Levite. A Levite. Not only is he a fellow Jew, but he is a Levite, right? He knows the law. He worships the Lord. He's tirelessly devoted to religious zeal. He sees the man, and he walks right past him. Then finally comes another man. And verse 20, or 33 calls him a certain Samaritan. So we had a certain lawyer. Now we have a certain Samaritan. Now, recall what we've learned before about the Samaritans and the Jews. We won't get into it all. At some point, I will teach the intertestamental class again. And if you can be a part of that, it will open your eyes to what's going on between these two groups of people. But what we know is this, that these two groups of people were sworn enemies. Since the days of Nehemiah and Ezra, the Jews and the Samaritans had been at odds with each other. They were There was 500 years of bad blood between them by the time Jesus walked the earth. The, the Samaritans were descendants of the northern tribes of Israel, having mixed with the Assyrians who conquered them. They were seen as half-breeds. The Samaritans tried to claim to be Jews. The Jews rejected them because they were impure before God. They were impure before the law. And so the, they, they had had a very bad relationship over time. So much so that the Jews did not even regard Samaritans as fully human. They saw them as a lesser form of humanity. They often called them dogs. They actually saw them as lower on the pecking order than even the Gentile world. The Samaritans were, 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 were the mud underneath their sandals to them. So the point is, this Samaritan is the only one of these three people who, by the law of natural human justice, should have felt justified in walking past this man. This man is a Jew. He's half dead. Good. I'm out of here. Right? The other two should have said, my brother, my fellow Jew, a a, a child of God, let me help you. They walked by. The Samaritan, by the law of human justice, by the law of natural justice, this Samaritan had every right to just walk by this enemy of his. But what do we read? Instead, the Samaritan, when he saw the wounded man, has compassion on him, treats and dresses the man's wounds, takes him into the inn, cares for him, and when he needed to leave the next day, he gave the innkeeper some money, to house and to care for him until he was able to take care of himself. And then he also gave the keeper permission to run up a tab. If you need more than what I've given you, run up a tab. And when I come back, I will pay you for all the expenses for him to be cared for unto health. Now, by any standard, this was a generous deed. By the standard of this parable, the Samaritan and the Jew connection... There's without question that this man showed tremendous love to the Jew who was hurt. We'll we'll come back to our interpretation in just a moment. Jesus then asks a question of this lawyer in verse 36. He asks, which now of these three thinkest thou? Remember, how do you interpret the law? What do you think? 
If you can do this with people when you're trying to guide them into truth, if you can just give them the scripture and say, what do you think? And help them guide themselves into truth. Very helpful. So he asked, what, which one of these thinkest thou was neighbor of him that fell among the thieves? Which one of this, of these three was neighborly? Was it the priest? Was it the Levite? Was it the Samaritan? Which one was the neighbor? Remember where the question is coming from. The man had given the correct answer to how to inherit eternal life. Love God, love thy neighbor. If this is the answer, then it's important to know who your neighbor is. This parable that Jesus gave is the answer to that question. Jesus asks, which one was neighborly? To which the lawyer responds in verse 37. And he said, he that showed mercy on him. I wonder if he didn't want to even say the Samaritan because it hurt a little bit to try to just, just to use the word. So he just says, well, the guy that showed mercy. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe I'm reading into it a little bit there. But one way or another, he doesn't say it. The Samaritan man. We call this the parable of the good Samaritan. The Jews might call it the parable of the man who had mercy. right? Because we're not going to use the word Samaritan. It was the Samaritan. The merciful man was the neighbor. Jesus says, which one is the neighbor? What does it mean to show to be neighborly? Who is your neighbor? Your neighbor is everybody who has a need. He that showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said unto him, go and do thou likewise. Love everyone as yourself. Do good to all men. Love all men. And here's where the man, without fail and without question, lost the argument, even in his own heart. To this point, he was willing to justify himself. He'd exalted himself. I have loved God, even though he hadn't. I have loved my neighbor, even though he hadn't. Fully, right? Completely. But but he thought he had. But when it came to this, have you loved all men? There's no way you could say yes to that. There's no way. There's absolutely no way. When Jesus said that to love thy neighbor as thyself means to sacrifice even to your very life for those who would call you their enemies and for those whom you would call your enemies. At this point, whatever self-justification the man might have felt was gone. And this is where we're going to finish with our reading today and our interpretation. And we're going to get uh, into uh, deeper into the interpretation than into the application. Uh, But before we finish, before we get into our application, I want to spend a few moments cautioning you on what I have found so very common and heard so often preached uh, in our circles and others in regard to this parable. I was at a preacher's conference not too long ago. It was about a month and a half, two months ago. And the theme of the conference had something to do with, are you manning the inn? And as the preacher was explaining this idea, he was said that they drew the account from Luke tap, chapter 10 and the Good Samaritan. And he used it entirely allegorically, which makes for great preaching, but not for very good teaching. He said, okay, the certain Jewish man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jerusalem was the city of God. Jericho was the city that in the Old Testament had been condemned by God, right? It was the accursed city. So this man was going from the place of blessing to the place of cursing. And so now we've allegorized the city, right? The the, the two cities. And then these two men passing by, the priest and the Levite, they represent the law and they represent religion, each of which could not save this man. But along came the Samaritan who was supposed to be uh, Jesus, who, is, who bound the man's wounds, cared for him, and then took him to the inn. 
And he led him out of the damage of sin and brought him into saving grace. And then he charges the innkeeper, that would be the pastor, with the soul of the man until the, uh, until the man returns. And that sounds really good. And so the message is that we're supposed to go out in the highways and byways and we're supposed to help and we're supposed to, 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 to be that one to bind the wounds and we're supposed to be that innkeeper and all of that. And, and that's, 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 that's all right. That's all true. I don't argue with the ideas. I don't argue that we should be telling others about Christ. I don't argue that we should be loving others. I don't argue that we should be the innkeeper to help those who are, who are wounded recover from their spiritual devastation. But do you see what's missing from the whole thing? What's missing from the whole thing is the answer to the question, who is my neighbor? That, that's, that's not in that allegory anymore. It's all muddied under all of this other stuff that Jesus was using to prop up the point. Which is, who is my neighbor? We we miss the foundation of the conversation that was taking place between the lawyer and Jesus. And by the way, if it were an allegory, it would be a tough one when we actually think about it. This man was going from the city of God to the accursed city. I, I, I I don't know too many unbelievers that are going from blessing to cursing when Jesus finds them. You'd think they'd be going from cursed to, I don't know, I don't, I don't understand that part of the allegory if, if, if that's there. This man was overlooked by a priest and a Levite. Is that how the world operates? D- does the law and religion overlook the battered man or does the law and religion hopelessly try to help the battered man? Right? Isn't that what the law does and what religion does? They tell the battered man, I have the solution. They don't look at the battered man and walk on. They, they say to the battered man, come let me batter you now. <laughs> right? Come let, uh, let, let, let me heal you by beating you across the head with religion. Let me heal you by beating you across the head with the law. Let me heal you by heaping more guilt on you. That's what, if this was an allegory, that's what we'd see, right? We wouldn't see them walk by. We'd see them start kicking the man while he's down. Because that's what the law and religion do in and of themselves. And then this Samaritan. If this Samaritan is Jesus, then now Jesus is the outsider to the Jews. Jesus is the enemy of the Jews. Jesus is the one who is outside of the covenant faith of God. I just don't, it, it doesn't, it doesn't relate. It doesn't make sense. Now, if, if it was a Jew who helped the Samaritan, which wouldn't have been very good for the parable because a Jew, a Jew condescending to help a Samaritan, that would have been understandable to a Jew, right? Okay, this is a condescending Jew, but no, this is a Samaritan helping a Jew. This is the Jew that's vulnerable. So that doesn't really mesh with the picture of Jesus. That Jesus as the Samaritan would not mesh culturally, would not mesh, mesh as far as how the story is supposed to be told. It wouldn't help this man understand anything. And then what about the inn? What part do we play in salvation? Do we really bind the wounds for Christ? Do we really cover the cost of healing? If Christ is the one who does these things so that we, we are the, the innkeeper, what part do we play in the whole? It just doesn't, not, none of it really makes sense as an allegory. And so while we can draw out some interesting and, and, and helpful lessons, I propose that we're not being honest with the scriptures, if that's what we're drawing out. And we need to be careful about that. Because while the lessons are good, what we don't want is for one day our young people to have heard all of these these things and they're good things. And then one day to be reading their Bible and understand, wait a minute, that's not what the Bible is saying. My pastor told me all of these things and that's not really true. What else did he tell me that isn't true? 
what can I trust and what can't I? And it's, it's, it's understandable that a pastor is wrong. I've been wrong before, I'll be wrong again. But if the pastor is not doing his due diligence to make clear the word of God, then what are we doing here? We're not here just to give nice ideas and important ideas and then to find a text that wraps, that, that we can wrap around our ideas. We're here to read the text and to know what the text says so that we can obey it. And what Jesus was doing here, far from giving a lesson on how we should evangelize, was giving a scenario that would be so completely outside of the Jewish interpretation of the law that, that in their mind, their neighbor was, was not only, only those from the Jewish nation, but only those from the Jewish nation that they liked, that were kind to them. That was his idea of a neighbor. And so for, for them to say, for Jesus to say, your neighbor is your worst enemy, that would literally blow his mind. And, and, and this is the impact. This is what we are supposed to draw out. This is what we are supposed to understand. This is the significance of this parable. And this is where we must go with it because this is where Jesus is going with it. And if we're going to learn the lesson which Jesus actually teaches here, then we need to know this. So let's apply. Let's apply this evening. Let's take what we know and let's make it what we understand. And then if we can take what we know and make it what we understand, then maybe by God's grace we can make it what we believe, right? Point number one. What must be done to inherit eternal life? cannot be done by you. And so it was done by Jesus for you. As we begin with this ever important point, the man was exactly right when he says that in order to inherit eternal life, I must love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, and might, and I must love my my neighbor as myself. That is 100% accurate. If you have even one sin, you cannot get into heaven. But what the text makes abundantly clear is that you and I have not and indeed cannot keep the commandments, which means we are all, we have all by our own sin invalidated us from heaven. And it's easy enough for you and I to take a legalistic set of rules from God and follow them. Religions do this all the time, right? Say and don't say, do and don't do, wear and won't wear, think and don't think, go and don't go. And we do all of that and then we're set. It's easy enough to love your neighbor if you can Consider your neighbor people that you think like you or people that you like. It's easy enough, though still completely false, for the human heart to reason away his own self-righteousness by these standards. But when Jesus says that your neighbor is your worst enemy and that if you don't love him with all your heart, then you are a verified card-carrying sinner who has fallen short of the glory of God, then all of the sudden you and I have a major problem. Because none of us is perfect. And by the way, the law is still right. Perfection is the standard. And that leaves us with the words of David in Psalm 53, 1-3. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Corrupt are they and have done abominable iniquity. There is none that doeth good. God looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand that did seek God. Every one of them has gone back. They are altogether become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. And of course, once you realize that you are not one of these that has done right his whole life, that you are one of these that is not good, and you can never measure up to God's standard, well, then we have a choice to make. 
we fall down at the feet of Jesus and accept his standard, his, his means of salvation, which is not for us to work our way through merit. Indeed, we never can, but rather to accept Christ's merit on our behalf. And this is grace. Or we can do what the lawyer did. We can start to reason ourselves away into self-justification. Find some way to justify ourselves by rejecting the grace of God, justify myself by some work, and end up in a sinner's hell. The lawyer was 100% correct. No man who is not perfect can enter into eternal life. Eternal life is reserved exclusively for the righteous, and this is the problem with the law. While contained in the law is all the righteousness of God, no one can possibly keep it, so it cannot save anyone. The law can do nothing but condemn because no one has the ability to keep it. This is what Jesus says. This is what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. This is what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to take our sin on himself so that we can take his righteousness on ourselves. God the Father judicially reckons sin upon the person of Christ so that it doesn't have to be reckoned on us. Romans chapter 8 verses 3 and 4 tells us this. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. See, the law was not weak in and of itself. The law is holy and right and good, Paul says. But the law was weak Through our sinfulness. The law could not save because you and I can't keep it. Because we're sinful. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin condemns sin in the flesh. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. Do you see what happened here? Combine it with what we read in 2 Corinthians 5.21. We could not keep the law because we're sinful. The law, the law is God's holy standard, but it can't save anyone because we're sinful. So God sent his son in the likeness of flesh, not in sinful flesh, but in the likeness of sinful flesh, to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, so that the righteousness of the law might be given to those who are in the flesh, by Jesus Christ taking upon himself our sin, and Jesus giving us his righteousness. So that now Jesus becomes sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And so that when God looks at us, He sees men and women who have never, ever once offended the law. When God looks at you, He sees someone who has loved the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, and might. He sees someone who has loved his neighbor as himself, not because you always have, but because Christ always did and Christ's righteousness has clothed you has covered you if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your savior how can this righteousness be fulfilled in us well it cannot be fulfilled by keeping the law because I can't do it it cannot be fulfilled by giving God my life because I can't do it it cannot be fulfilled by being a good person because I'm not one of those it cannot be fulfilled by casting off my sin because I can't do that it cannot be uh, fulfilled by anything but accepting the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross as my exclusive hope for salvation to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved and then Christ's righteousness is applied to my account Not because I deserve it, but because Christ is good. 
And then that righteousness of the law, which I in myself simply cannot attain, is applied to me. So that when God looks at me, he doesn't see someone that's not guilty, but he does see someone that is declared innocent. I am, I, I am not innocent in and of myself, but I have been declared righteous through Christ. And then the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside me. And the chains of sin are broken that held me. And then I'm able through Christ to overcome sin and to do what is right. After I have accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior, I have that power through the Spirit to obey what God expects me to do. And if you're a believer, then this is the power that you have. And if this is the power that you have, then we must ask, are you taking advantage of it? And one of the ways that that, that this comes into play is through what Jesus said here about who your neighbor is. See, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, we find a man who loves his neighbor as himself, and his neighbor is his greatest enemy. And so the question, or the statement as our second point, first, what must be done to inherit eternal life cannot be done by you, and so is done by Jesus for you. But secondly, as a believer, so once you're a believer, you need to live like one. You need to love your neighbor. As a believer, you need to live like one. You need to love your neighbor. If we're going to live like believers, we need to go and do likewise. That's what Jesus Christ said, right? He said it right at the end of verse 37. Go and do thou likewise. I just read that from the Bible. A certain lawyer walks away on his own that day saying, what Jesus asks of me is impossible. To love my neighbor as myself when my neighbor is defined as even your worst enemy. And indeed, by our own righteousness it is. But see, Jesus Christ's righteousness is, is over you. His Holy Spirit is inside of you, right? And so the expectation is upon you and I that we would love our neighbors as ourselves. It's what Paul says in Romans 13, verses 8 through 10. I'm not making this up. Owe no man anything but to love one another, Paul writes. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. There's the law part again, right? For this thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. That's the five love thy neighbor as thyself commandments, right? That's those last five commandments. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. This is not a requirement for salvation, much rather, and simply put, if you are a born again believer so that you are enabled by the spirit of God to do God's will. And if you're called by God to live a life that is submitted to the spirit of God, then you need to love others. Paul said the same thing we said earlier. Those five commandments, they are briefly comprehended in this, that thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. These are all taken care of by default if you will have this mindset of loving your neighbor as yourself. Paul would write in Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 to 16, For brethren, you have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. This I say then, walk in the spirit, 
and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The liberty that you have in Christ is not given to you so that you can pursue worldliness and sinfulness and your own ends and your own designs and have your get-out-of-hell-free card. The liberty you have in Christ is given to you so that you can be free to love your neighbor, who might even be your worst enemy, as yourself, regardless of who he might be or where he might be. James 2, verses 8 through 10. Let's talk, let's, let's learn from someone other than Paul here. James, if you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. James calls this the royal law. To devote yourself to others is Christ's highest calling. And who is your neighbor? Jesus answered it. Everyone. Go and do that likewise. Think of your worst enemy. He's your neighbor. Is that not what the parable of the Good Samaritan is telling us? Is that not the point of the parable? Is that not where Jesus is driving? Who is your, who is your neighbor? Who was neighborly? The Samaritan who hates Jews, helped the Jew, cared for the Jew, didn't just care for him, didn't just bind up his wounds and say, oh, I ran out of band-aids. I guess you're on your own now. He paid to have him put into the inn. He spent the night caring for him. Then he paid the innkeeper to keep him until he was well and said, if there's anything else, put it on my tab. This Jew may never, ever, ever see him again. He may never see this Jew again. And this Jew might walk away saying, I don't know who helped me, but by the way, I still hate Samaritans. That's okay. That's okay. Because who is thy neighbor that you're supposed to love as thyself. Jesus teaches this in Matthew 5, verses 43 to 48. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. Which, by the way, every religion teaches. This is nothing special. If you love your, na- if you, if you love your friends and hate your enemies, then you're, you're doing what is Normal. Normal. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That ye may be children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even publicans the same. Even the worst among us, are good to those that are good to them. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. I mean, that's politics in a nutshell today, right? And those people are, no no doubt, some of the worst among us. And yet, they still scratch the backs of those that scratch theirs. Right? This This is done in the world. This is done among sinners. And if you salute your brethren only, what do you do more than others, folks? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. This is not Jesus, nor is it me telling you how to be saved. What must you do to inherit eternal life? You can't do it, folks. But look, once you're already a believer, take heed to these words. If you only love those who love you, you are doing nothing more than anyone else. But when you see an enemy and you bless them, this is different. We already read from Paul from Paul in Romans 13. Let me let me go back a bit to Romans 12. 
verses 18 to 21, Paul said this, If it be possible as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, this is the conclusion. If thine enemy, 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 hunger, feed him. If your enemy, if he thirst, give him drink. For in doing so, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. It means you'll, you'll bless him. We, we can get into that another day when we preach that passage. And then look what he says here at the end. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. You know, we, we Christians don't do this very well, do we? We're, we're just as big into our squabbles and our divisions and our, uh, I don't like him because he doesn't like me or he doesn't like me, therefore I don't like him or he doesn't believe what I believe, so now he's my enemy and I'm going to look at him and be angry at him and hate him and, and I'm not going to talk to her anymore because of what she said about me and I'm not going to do this for him because he didn't do that for me and when I was, when I was down, he didn't help me, so now that he's down, I'm not going to help him and when I had needs, I didn't, he didn't help me, so why should I help him when he has needs? We do this all, I mean, th- th- this is, this is what we do as humans but here's the thing that's what we do as humans that's our flesh talking folks that's not the spirit of God talking what does the spirit of God say who is your neighbor who's your neighbor your enemy is your neighbor love thy neighbor as thyself if you can get that through if you can do that thing you fulfilled the whole law let's take one more step and then we're finished today so, what must be done to inherit eternal life? It cannot, uh, it cannot be done by you, so, be, so Jesus did it for you. Second, as a believer, live like one, so love your neighbor. Third, as a believer, live like one, love thy brethren even more. To whatever degree you say, I love my enemy, when you get among the brethren, kick it up a notch. You love your enemies, you love the stranger, you love the innocent, you love the needy, but above all, and highest priority of all, love the brethren. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. 1 Peter 2, verse 17. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God. Honor the king. First John verse two, chapter two, verse eleven. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness and walketh in darkness and knoweth not whither he goeth, because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. First John chapter three, verses fourteen to sixteen. We know that we have passed from death unto life. Now this isn't you haven't passed from death to life if you haven't. This is this is how you have confidence in your salvation. First John is not about how to be saved. First John is about how to know you're saved. Very important. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. It doesn't mean that you're not saved. It means that you're living out in you're living in death. You're living in the death that you have been redeemed from. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. There, if you hate your brother, then you better start to wonder if you're a believer. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Continuing in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 11. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God 
is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. All of this context is the brethren. 1 John 4, verses 20 and 21. If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. Do you see it? That the essence of Christ's life is love. Love your enemies through forgiveness. Love love the unbeliever through evangelism. But the pinnacle of this is intended to be felt by one another in this in, in this fellowship among the brethren in these midst. This is the pinnacle of love as it's intended by God to be forwarded one toward another. And by this, we show the world that we love Christ. And we teach each other what it means to love Christ. And we grow ourselves in the love of Christ when we love one another. We don't do this very well all the time either, do we? All those squabbles I talked about before, that's actually stuff that happens between believers, right? We're not even talking about the unbelieving world at that point. And we're not doing a very good job at obeying First John. Now, I'm not saying we. We. The collective we, right? I don't know what the Holy Spirit has been saying to you. I don't know if there's that one person in mind that you've been struggling with And they're an enemy. (laughs) And so you hate them. And you have spoken ill of them. And you have thought ill of them. And you have not helped them. And they've had needs and you've ignored them. You have walked by them when they're half beaten on the road. Because they're your enemy. And you said, serves them right. And that's by every natural human justice what we should do. But by God's command... It's not. And if you are a believer, we need to act like one. Who's the enemy? Who's the one in your mind? Maybe it's not even someone you know. Maybe it's someone you read about in the newspaper. Maybe it's that politician. <laughs> Maybe it's that person in Hollywood. Maybe it's that, that godless organization. Maybe it's Fill in the blank. Whoever it is, look. Love your enemy. It's what Jesus taught. Who is my neighbor? Everyone's your neighbor. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples when you have love one toward another. And if you are a believer, you need to be like the Samaritan man. That's the point of the parable. That's the answer to the question, who is my neighbor? If you're a believer, you're capable of loving others as Christ loves them. And by the way, how much did Christ love them? He gave his son. He, he, God gave his son. Jesus Christ died for them. He gave his life for them. So how are we doing this evening? If you're a believer, are you loving others like you're a believer? Or have you found a way to justify your hatred? You found a way to redefine who is your neighbor in order to justify yourself. That's what the lawyer was doing, wasn't it? Who is my neighbor? 
Jesus didn't let him get away with that one. Are you walking in love and forgiveness? If you have unforgiveness in your heart, if you have bitterness in your heart, if you have resentment in your heart, may I tell you these are symptoms of a spiritual heart that has is not loving his neighbor. There's a spiritual problem there that needs to be solved. The flesh is in charge somewhere. It's dominating somewhere and you need to identify it and root it out by the grace of God. Because, by the way, if it's bitterness or resentment, it will eat you up and it will destroy you. Are you walking in love toward the brethren? This group ought to feel your love most of all. This group ought to be closer for many of you even than family. Is it? Have you poured yourselves into the lives of one another? Now, have you poured yourself into the lives of the brethren? Whatever whatever group of brethren that might be. As a believer, this is how we live like it. And so when Jesus finishes the parable, he says, go and do thou likewise. Let's do it. And let's pray.